Now will you notice as we come to chapter 15 now and we're beginning to move to the end of the epistle to the Romans, we have now the relationship of believers to one another and to outsiders. Now, first of all, we have the third great principle put down here, and that's the consideration of the weak brother. And that actually is continued from the last chapter. And it's the subject of separation we have in the first three verses here. Then you have the consolidation of Jews and Gentiles in one body to glorify God. And then you have the continuation of Paul's personal testimony as apostle to Gentiles and to Romans in particular. Now, this section will conclude the major argument of the epistle. And Paul will lapse back to personal relationships. Now, we need to say probably just a word here when we get to it about this matter of radical higher criticism has questioned the authenticity of these last two chapters of Romans. And they do it without any valid reason or documentary evidence of the Pauline authorship. But it is the custom of the Bauer school years ago to question the authorship. And I think that today this authorship of Paul is established And we may conclude with this statement of Dr. Kerr in his introduction to New Testament study. Despite these objections, the integrity of the epistle as it now stands is certain. Now, let's move into it. We come now to this third great principle for Christian conduct. We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. Now, this is the third and the last guiding principle which should govern the conduct of Christians. You see, Paul identifies himself with the strong ones, and he insists that these should show consideration for the feelings and prejudices of the weak believers. When you invite a Christian over to your house that doesn't believe in dancing, don't put on a square dance for him because you'll offend him. Maybe you can square dance. I don't know. I can't. But I'm a weak believer, as you can see. There's certain things I very definitely feel I cannot do. And one of the reasons that I can't do certain things is the very fact that it's consideration of others. Now, I haven't been inside of a moving picture show in years. I can't even remember the last time I went. Somebody says, oh, you're one of these separated fellows that don't believe you can go to movies. Maybe you can go. I don't know. I'm not judging you. I can't. And one of the reasons is right here, consideration of the weak brother. We that are strong, I feel like that I could go. I think some of these would disgust me today, to tell the truth. But we that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. Well, I'm not going to judge you for going. And you remember Paul says, Wherefore, if meat make my brother to offend, I'll eat no meat while the world's standing, lest I make my brother to offend. Paul said, I can eat meat, but I won't eat it if it's going to offend my brother. And let no man seek his own, but every man another's wealth. 1 Corinthians 10:24. Seek the interests of the other man. Bear ye one another's burdens, so fulfill the law of Christ. Now, verse 2. Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good edification. Now, Paul could say, I'm free from all men. 
I make myself a servant in all that I might gain the more. Now, Paul says, under the Jews, I became a Jew that I might gain the Jews. And a great many people say, oh, I can't understand how Brother Paul could take a Jewish oath, shave his head, have a vow, go to Jerusalem to the temple. You'll understand it, friend, if you understand what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians, the ninth chapter, the 19th and 22nd verse, where he says, to the Jews, I became a Jew that I might gain the Jews. To them that are under the law is under the law, I might gain them. Somebody says, oh, I would never go to a, let me say it very plainly, to a Roman Catholic church. Well, years ago, when I was a student in seminary, I went with a girl who's Roman Catholic, and I'd go with her to her church. You know why? Because the agreement was she'd go with me to mine. <laughs> That's the way I got her to go. Well, I got her to make a decision for Christ, by the way. This idea today, these hyper-separated folk, my friend, we can't indulge in things that are definitely wrong. Somebody says, how far can you carry this? I know a group that went into a burlesque show to witness. Well, I think you're in the wrong place. I can tell you very definitely from Scripture, those things are wrong. There's certain things wrong, friends. And somebody says, well, I'll go in a nightclub and take a drink with him. Yes, and I know a girl became a drunkard that started that sort of thing. That's wrong. We're talking about questionable things. Let's come up to the movie. Would you go to a movie? If I thought it'd win somebody, I would. I haven't been to one in years, as I've said. May I say to you, what I do is my business. What you do is your business. I'm going to have to give an account to Christ someday, and you are too. And what we do, we ought to do because we love him and want to serve him. That's important. Now, we are told here, for even Christ pleased not himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproached thee fell on me. This is the only place where Paul apparently uses Christ as an example But he's only an example to believers in redemption, friends. Never are we to imitate him. Because, very frankly, no one has ever become sanctified or become a Christian by following an example. He's become a Christian by faith in Christ. Now we've come here in verse 4 of chapter 15 to a new section. Now Paul begins to talk about the fact that Jews and Gentiles in one body are there to glorify God. And what we have here in verse 4 is this, For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. Now, the Old Testament, therefore, does have a definite application to believers today. Now, if you've listened to our program, you know I've shared letters from time to time of folk who wrote, and the sense of the letter was this. I never knew that the Old Testament was so practical. I never knew that it had such meaning for us today. I never knew that it spoke of Christ as it does. Well, the Old Testament, you see, is for our comfort. And Paul says here, these things were written in the old time for our learning. And I would say the greatest sin in the church today of Jesus Christ is ignorance of the Word of God. And I think it's tragic. And I've heard this so many times. A deacon says, 
Well, you know, I don't know much about the Bible. Why don't you? These things were written for time for your learning. God wants you to know his word. You mean that you can boast as a deacon of the church? That you're ignorant of the word of God? You mean that you occupy an office in the church? Or that you are busy in the church? That you are doing things in the church and you're ignorant of the word of God? Well, you better get busy. I think that's the great sin of the hour. Now, Paul says these things were written for your learning. And what will it do for you? Well, that through patience and comfort of the Scriptures. The only way in the world that you can find any comfort today in this world and any patience today is in the Scriptures. And the only place that you're going to find any hope, you won't find any hope in the papers. You don't find any hope in modern literature today. Look at modern art. Look in any field today and see if you see any hope. Listen to modern music, my friend. Is there any hope today? None whatsoever. It's dark and dismal when you look out at this world. The only place you can find hope is in the Word of God. I think that one of the most interesting things is I was up in the state of Washington, and it rained and rained and rained, and then it rained some more. Oh, I tell you, how dark and dismal the days were. Then we went over to the airport. It's still raining. And we got on the plane, and the plane took off, went up through all those clouds, and in a few moments we just broke out into the light, and the sun was shining up there. Oh, how beautiful it was. And less than a mile up, the sun was shining. And here we were living like a bunch of gophers down there in all of that rain. Now, my friend, don't misunderstand me, because people in Washington are going to hear this program, and I'm going to hear from them. But very frankly, they need all that rain up there for those beautiful, lovely trees. But I've been in Southern California too long. I love the sunshine. And it was wonderful to get up there. Now, there are a great many Christians today that are staying down here beneath the cloud. The Lord says, come on up here, where the sunshine of hope is shining today. And that's what the Bible will do for you. It's the only thing that will do this for you, my friend. Now, you'll notice here, he says that uh, in 1 Corinthians 10, he says, Now all these things happened unto them for ensamples, and they're written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the world are come. Now, when we were studying about David, I got more letters from folk, and I met more people that said, Oh, what an encouragement, what a help to me David was. And one party said to me they were going through a very dark period in their life. They said that came at the right moment. It delivered me probably from suicide about David. Well, that's the reason God wrote that, friends. After all, he put David's sin on display. That wasn't very nice. But God, you know, paints mankind just as he is. But that was written for our learning. Everything in the Old Testament, friends, is written for our learning and to give us patience and to give us comfort and bring hope into our lives. That's the purpose. Now, verse 5, Now the God of patience and consolation grants you to be like-minded one toward another, according to Christ Jesus. Now, Paul pauses here as it were, to pray that the blessings 
which are channeled only through the Word of God, might have their effect upon both Jews and Gentiles in the body of Christ. Not that they should see eye to eye with each other on meats and drink, because they won't, but that they might demonstrate that they are one in love and in consideration one of another. Verse 6, that ye may with one mind and one mouth glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And there should be here a harmony in their praise that they reveal the unity of believers. You know, they tell the old story. When I was a boy out in West Texas, we had a Methodist church on one corner. We had a Baptist church on another corner. And we had a Presbyterian church on the other corner. And they said one night, why the Methodists were singing, Will there be any stars in my crown? And the Presbyterians were singing, No, not one. No, not one. And the Baptists were singing, Oh, that will be glory for me. Well, now, you know, that's just a story. I don't think it ever worked out really that way. But actually, it looks like that. But frankly, all three of them, If they're believers, whether they're Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian, if they're really believers, and just to be one of these doesn't make you a believer, by the way. But if you're a real believer, all three of you could sit down and sing the doxology together, praise God from whom all blessings flow. And that's the testimony we should give to the world. Now, verse 7, Wherefore receive ye one another, as Christ also received us to the glory of God. Now, actually here, let me give you my translation, because I think it should, instead of being here, us, it should be you. Notice, wherefore, receive ye one another, even as Christ also received, not us, receive you to the glory of God. You see, God receives man on the simple acceptance of Christ, both strong and weak, high and low, Jew and Gentile. Now let both the strong and the weak receive each other in fellowship. The glory of God is the supreme objective. Man said, why is it that you are rather critical of the Pentecostal viewpoint? And yet, some of these brethren are very friendly towards you. In fact, you're invited to speak in their churches. How is that? Well, I said, the reason is they got more of the grace of God than I have, and they recognize that as one of them wrote me. I think I shared an excerpt of his letter. He said, we agree on too many things to let one or two things separate us. And that is the thing, I think, very important, that we need to recognize that we differ on some things. But if we agree on the major things, that's all important. Receive ye one another, as Christ also received us to the glory of God. In other words here, God just receives man on the basis of simple faith. And I need to recognize that this other man, he disagrees with me on certain things. There's certain people that disagree with me on this matter. I don't think that tongues is a gift for today. Some people do. But I see no reason why I should fall out with some of them because of the fact I just pray they're going to see it as I see it someday. And the very interesting thing is, that one of these days when we're in his presence, all of us are going to agree. Did you know that all of you folk will agree with me? Every one of you is going to agree with me in that day. And you know why you are? 
because I'm going to have to change a whole lot of things also. All of us are going to be changed, changed into his image and in his likeness, and then we're all going to agree. Now, in view of that fact, we better magnify the places where we agree today. Now, listen to Paul. He says, Now I say that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God, to confirm the promises made unto the fathers, and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written for this cause. I'll confess thee among the Gentiles and sing unto thy name. Now, this is amazing. When the Lord Jesus Christ came into this world, he came into this world as a minister of the circumcision. And his ministry was confined to the nation Israel. He very frankly said, I'm not sent, but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's Matthew 15:24. And in Matthew 10:6, he said to his apostles, But go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And then we are told, The same came therefore to Philip, which was a Bethsaida of Galilee, and desired him, saying, Sir, we had seen Jesus. And they were Gentile, Greeks. Uh, of course, those that believed, those Greeks were actually Hellenes, which means they were Jews who were out in the Roman world in that day. And probably it was that. In other words, when he came 1,900 years ago, he came in this capacity. Why? To confirm the promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God says, from your loins, Abraham, I'm going to bring one. It'll be a blessing to the world. And he had to come that way, to be a blessing to the Gentiles, you see. And for that reason, we're told in Luke 2.21, And when eight days were accomplished for the circumcising of the child, his name was called Jesus, which was so named of the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Friends, he couldn't be Jesus unless he was born in the line of Abraham and in the line of David and unless he followed the law. They called him Jesus after he circumcised. He was brought up that way. He came to fulfill the entire Mosaic system. We're told, but when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them which were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of son. Salvation came to Israel through Christ in confirming and fulfilling the truth of the Old Testament promises. By this method, salvation is brought to the Gentiles. The Gentiles' only claim was upon the mercy of God. No promise was ever made to our fathers. I do not know who my father was way back yonder in the beginning of the forests of Germany and over in Scotland. I do not know what his name was, but I do know this. God never made any promise to him. He made no promise to my fathers, but he did to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, Christ came to confirm the truth of the promises made to the fathers of the Jews, but he came that the Gentiles might obtain mercy. And this, the Gentiles, are to glorify God. I thank God the gospel came years ago to my ancestors. And it was only by the mercy of God. They were not outstanding. They hadn't done anything. Now, we're told here, as it is written. And you notice how many times he uses that. As it is written, for this cause I'll confess thee among the Gentiles, sing praises. And he quotes here two from the Psalms. One is from Deuteronomy, 
One is from Isaiah, the quotations that you have in this section from the Old Testament. Now he says, verse 10, And again he said, Rejoice, ye Gentiles, with this people. Now this is from Deuteronomy 32, 43. This is from the law, you see. And it's the end of the song of Moses. And verse 11, And again praise the Lord, all ye Gentiles, and laud him all ye people. And this now is from the 117th Psalm, the briefest psalm there is in the Scripture. All is used twice here. Praise him, all ye Gentiles. Thank God for that. Verse 12, And again Isaiah saith, There shall be a root of Jesse. He shall rise to reign over the Gentiles, and him shall the Gentiles trust. You see, the word came to us. Paul's writing to Romans, and the Roman church was largely a Gentile church. Our churches today are largely Gentile churches. Now, the God of hope, he says, fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. This is, as it were, a benediction. Now, this actually concludes the doctrinal section of Romans. And the believing heart, I think, finds here the rock of ages. That's the shelter in the time of storm, the God of hope. Fill you with all joy and peace in believing. Now, that's what Romans should do to you. I hope this study in Romans has given to many of you joy and peace and strengthens your faith. And that has brought hope into your life and power, my friend. Now, that brings to an end the doctrinal section. Now you have the continuation of Paul's personal testimony as possible to the Gentiles. You remember he began this epistle in a very personal manner in those first 17 verses. Now, he leaves the doctrinal section, and he picks up that personal note with which he began the epistle. And that was his desire to visit Rome. Back in Romans 1.10, he says, Now at length that I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come unto you. Now listen to him, verse 14. And I myself also am persuaded of you, my brethren, that ye also are full of goodness, filled with knowledge, able also to admonish one another. Now, I think this is one of the loveliest things. Paul is offering here a gentle apology for his frankness and boldness in speaking to the Romans in the doctrinal section. It was not because they were lacking in goodness and knowledge, but rather because they possessed these qualities and Paul was able to be explicit and talk to him about it. Isn't that wonderful? That's the reason he gave us Romans. So that he wants to talk to us about these things. That's the reason we ought to live in Romans more. And it's the reason we've spent so much time in Romans. Because we want to understand it the best we can in order that we might have fellowship, you see. And Paul's being very humble, very sweet about it all. He's not lording it over God's heritage here. Now he says here in verses 15 and 16, Nevertheless, brethren, I have written the more boldly unto you in some sort as putting you in mind because of the grace that's given to me of God that I should be the minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God that the offering up of the Gentiles might be acceptable being sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Now Paul says here, I wrote, that means this epistle. And it means that he's writing it right now. He's explaining 
the fact of his boldness. He's reminding the Romans that he was the apostle to the Gentiles. And on the official basis of this God-appointed office, which came to him through the grace of God, he's exercising that office in writing as he did to the Romans. He's ministering to them. And it gives weight to the inspiration of the writings of Paul. Paul says, I am the apostle to you Gentiles. And he adopts the language of the Levitical priesthood, temple worship, and describing himself as a minister preaching the gospel. And the Gentiles are acceptable, apart from law or any religion, through Jesus Christ as preached by Paul, sanctifying. Notice this. The Holy Spirit indwelt the Gentiles beginning with Cornelius. And the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit begins with Jew and Gentile, the moment of regeneration when the Spirit of God takes up his abode in the believer. And Paul gave the gospel, but God gave the Holy Spirit when they believed. And it must be kept in mind that Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles in a very special sense. And he offered up the Gentiles as a high priest, making a sacrifice upon the altar. It's difficult for us today to fathom the full significance of all this. And yet Gentiles have entered into all that this applies. And my friend, if you've never thanked God for Paul the Apostle, you ought to right now thank God for Paul. God gave him to us. It's the reason we ought to read Romans. Now this verse 17 of the 15th chapter of Romans, it says, I have therefore whereof I may glory through Jesus Christ in those things which pertain to God. Now this verse actually is dependent on the two verses that immediately precede this. And as we said last time, Paul here adopts the language of the Levitical priesthood and the temple worship in describing himself as a minister preaching the gospel, and that he offers up the Gentiles as an offering unto God. And he does this in a very humble way, you know. Paul was a very humble man, and it's not with any officious manner whatsoever. Therefore, he then adds this verse. He says, "...I have therefore whereof I may glory through Jesus Christ and those things which pertain to God." Now, in view of the fact that he'd been rather apologetic before, he'd written boldly and all that, and he recognized that these saints in Rome, that they probably didn't need his instruction, but that he wanted to come and bring it to them. But in spite of that, he's with confidence in writing to the Romans. There is no personal assumption in this, but he's only in Christ Jesus, and he is a servant of Christ Jesus, and he's doing his will. Friends, that's very important to see. There's one thing that should never characterize a servant of God, and that's pride, or to become officious. We ought to take the position always that we are merely serving him, the Lord Jesus, and he's really the one in charge. Now, verses 18 and 19, he says, For I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ hath not wrought by me, 
to make the Gentiles obedient by word and deed, through mighty signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and round about unto Alecum I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. Now, Paul is saying here something that's very important, friends, and if we're to understand Paul, and especially whether he founded the church in Rome or whether Peter founded the church in Rome, you'll need to follow it very carefully now. And if this is followed carefully, you'll not come up with any false assumptions, I can assure you. Now, Paul is saying, I will not take credit for the work of God that is being done by others, and especially among the Gentiles. Now, he couldn't take credit for the day of Pentecost, and that, of course, was the beginning that finally resulted in the gospel going to the Gentiles. Paul says that he couldn't take credit for that. He says, only those things which God has done through me, that's the only thing I'm going to speak of. And therefore, he couldn't speak of the fact that the gospel went through Simon Peter, first to the Gentiles and the home of Cornelius. Paul says, I couldn't take credit for that at all. And he'll not take credit for that which God did through him, actually by word and deed. Paul is going to say that he never built on another's foundation. He had a peculiar ministry as the apostle to the Gentiles, and that it was through mighty signs and wonders. Now, friends, I want to be very careful here. Now, I hope you'll hear me. The mighty signs and wonders were the credentials of the apostles and the ministers in the early church. These were given to establish the church on the right foundation. Before there had ever been written a word of the New Testament. Listen to Paul in Ephesians 2.20. He's speaking now of the church and believers, and they're built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Now, he's not saying that the apostles are the foundation. There's no other foundation that any man can lay that which is Jesus Christ. But the apostles are the ones who put down the foundation of Jesus Christ, my beloved. And that's what Paul is saying here. Now, Paul says, since the apostles did that, you have to be very careful who the apostles are and who you're listening to. Now, Paul had the credentials that God had given to the apostles. Now listen to Acts 14:3. Long time therefore abode they speaking boldly in the Lord, which gave testimony unto the word of his grace, and granted signs and wonders to be done by their hands. You see that these were the marks of the apostles and the early preachers of the gospel. They didn't come with a New Testament in their hand. They came with these credentials, mighty signs and wonders. Now there came a day when the mighty signs and wonders were not the mark. John, in Second John, verse 10 says, If there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, 
receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed. That's very important. May I say today, the question is the doctrine and not these signs. The tragic thing of the moment, and I have, they're coming to my desk now, literally a flood of letters from people that are being carried away by fanaticism, by wrong teaching, by false doctrine, because there is a movement of the Spirit of God, but there's also a movement of the devil today. Satan is busy also. And a great many people are being carried away and trapped by that. And Paul has been so careful to emphasize the fact that the kingdom of God is not meat to drink. It's not, friends, these signs. It's not these outward physical things, but it just happens to be righteousness. And when I hear today of these groups meeting and they indulge in all kinds of sexual rights and that today they are not living for God at all, and then they talk about the fact that they have certain signs that they demonstrate the tongues movement. My friend, may I say to you, that it better be a clean tongue. If the Lord has come into your life, he'll clean you up. And that's the important thing. A clean tongue is what a great many folk need today. They need a loving tongue. These are the things that are needed, my friends, and these are the marks. And the mark, therefore, is the doctrine, not these outward signs. Now, he says that the Word of God had gone through him, to Alicricum. Now, that was a province of the Roman Empire next to Italy. You'll notice it comes down to the Adriatic Sea and goes up to the Danube River. Paul, at this time, had preached this far, the province that was right next to Italy, right next to Rome. But he hadn't quite reached Rome yet. And no record occurs in Acts of this visit of Paul at all. Paul went many places, friends, we do not have any record of. Now, there are those that believe he went even to Spain. I think this epistle will reveal he went to Spain. But I also believe that Paul probably went to Great Britain. Paul covered the Roman Empire, and we'll see that as we move along. Now, listen to him, because in verses 20 and 21, he's going to make another tremendous statement. He says, Yet, so if I strive to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build upon another man's foundation, but as it is written, to whom he was not spoken of, they shall see, and they that have not heard shall understand. I wonder if I may give you my translation of this. I think it'll be a little clearer. He says, indeed, in this way, having made it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, in order that I might not be building upon another man's foundation. But as it is written, they shall see those to whom there came no tidings of him, and those who have not heard shall understand. Now, it was a point of honor with Paul and not a matter of competition, but of honor, which caused him to go as a pioneer 
where the gospel had not been preached. In other words, Paul had a peculiar ministry. He was a true missionary. Paul did not minister where others had gone. His was a true ministry. And by the way, that is what is called an evangelist in the New Testament. Evangelist is not one who comes to a town or a city where committees have been working and churches have been cooperating and everything is set up and all he does is just walk in and begin. Paul never had a committee to work ahead of him. He never had a welcome. He never had the mayor around. The only one that ever came around was the chief of police, and that generally was to arrest him and put him in jail. Paul always ministered, friends, where the gospel had not gone, and there was no one there to welcome him. That is a true evangelist. That is a true missionary, by the way. And Paul says that he never went where the gospel is preached before. So who is the founder of the church in Rome? Paul went to Rome, and he makes it, I think, very clear in his introduction and here that he's the founder of the church in Rome. Now, we're going to see when we get to the last chapter in the next time or two that there were a group of people in Rome he knew. Some of them we know he led to the Lord. We're confident of that because the record says that he led them to the Lord. Now, He's the one that founded the church not by going there, but by remote control, by radar, by spiritual radar. He would reach these people out in the Roman Empire, and many of them would gravitate to Rome. And when they got there, they all came together. And I think that they met together around the person of the Lord Jesus. And I think many times they talked about their beloved pastor, Paul that he was the founder of the church there. And Paul, therefore, is it. And he quotes here, by the way, from Isaiah 52, 15, and it would seem that this was Paul's life verse as a missionary. It is from Isaiah 52, 15. He says here, But as it is written, To whom he was not spoken of, they shall see, And they that have not heard shall understand. And Paul was thrilled to go and preach the gospel to those that were spiritually blind. And Paul would preach and had turned to Christ. And then he gave out the word. And some brothers say, as many of them did, I see, brother Paul, I will accept Christ as my Savior. And friends, there's no thrill quite like the thrill of preaching Christ have people turn to him. What a wonderful thrill that is. And that was the experience of the Apostle Paul. Now will you listen here to verse 22. For which cause also I have been much hindered from coming to you. And when he says he's been much hindered, you can be sure of one thing. It was much hindered. He had many roadblocks put up. You know, the very interesting thing today is that A great many Christians get enamored of a faraway place with strange customs, and they neglect the home church. A great many want to go way out yonder to do mission work, and some are called. Paul was called. And the very interesting thing is there are too many Christians today, though, that they like to be told about the strange customs of 
unusual people way out yonder, and I have a letter from a missionary. I wish I had it before me. Quite interesting. He's one of the most dedicated missionaries I've ever met. He works down in South America among a tribe that has never had the Word of God. He's translating it into the tribe. When I then began to live among them, and he said to me, he says, you know, I want to come back and tell the people, get them interested in this work. Because he said, I know that they like to hear about these strange people down here and their strange customs. But he says, maybe the Lord will speak to somebody who want to do something about it. You know, it's quite interesting. I can give you something quite personal in that connection. Right here in Los Angeles, we have in South Los Angeles Bible training school. Wonderful school. We have difficulty getting support for it. But when we have a missionary that comes from Africa, and he tells about his work way out yonder, why, he gets good support. And he ought to, by the way. I'm from getting good support. But I don't quite understand the viewpoint of a great many people who neglect home base. Now, Paul here is making it clear he had a peculiar ministry. And he wants to take the gospel way out yonder. And he's coming to Rome. He'd never been there. But now he's going to say something unusually strange. Listen to him, verse 23 and 24. But now, having no more place in these parts. Now, there's been a question about what Paul meant. Did Paul mean here that there was no longer an opportunity to preach the gospel in the section of the Roman Empire where he was? Had the doors completely closed to him? Had everyone been saved? Had every nook and cranny been evangelized? Well, in my book, I take the position that the answer is no. I'm not sure that I'm right on all of those questions. I'm of the opinion, since I've been to Turkey and I've seen these seven churches of Asia Minor, Did you know that the gospel had sounded out through that entire area? Why? Because Paul and the other apostles and the other witnesses had been faithful. And it had gone out so that everyone, both Jew and Gentile, Dr. Luke says, had heard the gospel. Now, it doesn't mean they'd all turned to Christ, but they'd all heard. Now, Paul's looking for new territory. And he says that he's looking out yonder to the frontier. He says, Whensoever I take my journey unto Spain, I'll come to you. Now, what Paul is saying, honestly, Rome is not my destination. I want to go to Spain. He'd come from one end of the Roman Empire, and he wanted now to go to the other end of the Roman Empire. He says, For I trust to see you in my journey, and to be brought on my way thither would by you if first... I'd be somewhat filled with your company. Now, what does Paul mean here? Well, Paul means that he was going to come to Rome, but that was not the terminal. He wanted to go farther than Rome. He wanted to pursue this and go all the way to the end of the Roman Empire. Now, the question that I'd like to ask is, did Paul ever go to Spain? We have no record of it, but we had no record of that he had gone to and if he hadn't told us that here, we'd never have known it. But did Paul go to Spain? Did he get up in the rest of the Roman Empire? I think so. And you say, on what basis do you make that statement? 
Do you have any scripture? Oh, yes, I have scripture. When Paul came to the end of his life, Paul said, I finished my course. He says, I'm ready to be offered. The time of my departure is at hand. I fought a good fight. I finished my course. I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them that love is appearing. Now, Paul finished his course. I don't think he could have said that at the end of his life if he hadn't been to Spain, because it was on his itinerary. And when he gets to the end of his life, he says, I finished my course. I touched all the bases. I've been everywhere God intended me to go. And not many of us, I guess, will be able to say, I finished my course. But Paul was able to make that bold statement that he had finished his course. Then there's something else. Let's hear. He says in verse 25 and 26, But now I go unto Jerusalem to minister unto the saints, for it hath pleased them of Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor saints which are at Jerusalem. Now, two things that Paul wanted to do. He wanted to go to Spain, and that's to the west. Now, he also wants to go to Jerusalem, and that's to the east. These were the two things. And he wanted to take a gift to the poor saints in Jerusalem, and he wanted to take them by his own hands. You know why? Because he said with his own hands he'd wasted the church in Jerusalem. He'd persecuted it. And now he wanted to make up for that, take a gift to them. This is the heart of the great apostle Paul. This is very personal that he's talking to us about. Now, friends, Paul called giving a fellowship, to make a certain fellowship to the poor of the saints which are at Jerusalem. You see, you have fellowship. Christians have fellowship with God and with Christ and with one another when you give, friends. Actually, that's a fellowship. And fellowship doesn't mean patting somebody on the back. That's not fellowship. That's knife and fork club. They meet every week, these knife and fork clubs. And that's fellowship as far as they're concerned. But fellowship is sharing the things of Christ. And Paul said, He wanted to go to Jerusalem. Now, he persecuted the church. Now, he says, I want to have fellowship with them. I want to take a gift up there. And we read in Acts 24, 17, Paul gives the historical record of what he did. He says, Now, after many years, I came to bring alms to my nation and offerings. And this collection was a great burden on the heart of this great apostle. You'll find him writing about it. In 2 Corinthians, in fact, the 8th and ninth chapter is all about it. Now, I come to verse 27. It hath pleased them verily, and their debtors they are. For if the Gentiles have been made partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister unto them in carnal things. Now, Paul makes it clear that it was a free will offering. Every man according as he purposeth in his heart. So let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. Now, that's 2 Corinthians 9, 7, and this is the offering Paul took up. But Paul makes something else very clear. 
and that it's not only a free will offering, they couldn't give any other way to please God, but he also enforces the fact that they had a moral obligation and debt to pay. The Gentiles had received the gospel from the nation Israel. And in John 4, 22, our Lord said, Ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. The gospel began at Jerusalem. Macedonia and Achaia were obligated to Jerusalem. And some of the saints in Jerusalem were having financial difficulties because of the persecution. And Macedonia and Achaia can now pay a spiritual debt in the coin of the realm. And this is foreign missions in reverse, by the way. It's the missionary church helping the home church. And that may take place for we're through today, by the way, in this day in which we're living. And when you see the economy of our country and see what's happening abroad, the nations that we were victorious over today, they are prosperous, and we're the ones in debt. And it looks like we're going to have to learn to lose a war in order to be victorious and win. Germany and Japan, they're prosperous. The United States going in the other direction, apparently. Now, will you notice? I'm going to read now verse 28. When therefore I have performed this and have sealed to them this fruit, I will come by you into Spain. My, that was on the heart of the great apostle Paul. And notice the zeal that he had. He had a zeal in taking the gift to Jerusalem. And that, of course, placed him in the hands of his enemies who had him arrested. And he wasn't out of the will of God during that time. I disagree with some of my brethren here. I think Paul was absolutely in the will of God when he went up to Jerusalem. Now, we saw that when we were in the book of Acts. And he says here that he wanted to seal to them this fruit. Now, that is an awkward phrase for us. And it could mean no more than he wanted a receipt for the offering. He secured to them the gift. It probably means, however, that he wanted the Jerusalem church to see some fruits of their missionary efforts. And I personally believe that if you're going to give to anything, you ought to know what it's giving. I don't want to get on this subject of Christian giving today, but I think that's another area in which there is grave danger. I do not think you ought to give to anything unless two things about it. You ought to know what it's doing, and you ought to be dead sure that it's getting out the Word of God. And that Word of God is being effective in hearts and lives. I don't think, Christian friend, you have any right to give to a work because somebody's made some emotional and sentimental appeal to you and showed you some pictures of little orphans and said, my, you ought to give. How much goes for overhead? How much really gets out to the orphans? Do you really know where your giving is going? Is it getting the Word of God out? Well, I listened to a program when I was back east, a local program. And the best I could tell, the fellow never gave people anything. He's just asking them to give for something else. And it just looked to me like what he was doing was saying, send in money to continue me on the air so that tomorrow I'll be able to get back on the radio and 
ask you again for the next day. May I say to you, I feel that we ought to be sure what our giving is. And what he's doing here is he's saying, I want to take the gift of these Gentile believers to Jerusalem to let the Jerusalem church know that there's fruit out yonder on the field, that the Word of God is going out and it is being effective, and that it has a very practical bearing, too, that it's helping the poor saints in Jerusalem. And then another thing, Paul says, after all, I wasted the church, and I want to take it myself. I think he's in the will of God when he went to Jerusalem. Well, before I leave 28, let me come back there, because I got off on this matter of giving today, and that's one of my hang-ups, I guess, where I go off. Now, verse 28, "...when therefore I have performed this, and have sealed to them this fruit, I will come by you into Spain." Now, did Paul go to Spain? How could he say here, I'm coming by you to Spain, and then didn't go to Spain, yet later on would be able to say, I finished my course? I don't think so. Now, will you notice him in verse 29 here? And I am sure that when I come unto you, I shall come in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ. Now, this is Paul's stamp of approval on his prosperous journey to Rome. He went there according to the will of God and in the fullness of his apostolic office. God gave him divine insight into this trip. Paul's not out of the will of God, friends, in going to Jerusalem and also in going to Rome. It may not look like a prosperous journey, but God used it that way. And it's so easy for God's children, because when trouble comes and things begin to look dark and doubtful, they say, oh, am I in the will of God? I've talked to several people recently, and they're having a great deal of trouble, and their feelings are very much disturbed. And they're asking the question, am I in the will of God? My friend, just because you're having trouble... And you having disturbed feelings doesn't mean you're not in the will of God. In fact, it may mean you are in the will of God. Now, if you are in a calm today where nothing is happening and everything is just fine, then the chances are you're not in the will of God. Now, let me turn to verse 30. We're proceeding on through this chapter now. Now, I beseech you, brethren, for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake, and for the love of the Spirit that ye strive together with me in prayers to God for me. Now, I've been dwelling a long time in this area. There are several reasons. One of the reasons is that this is very personal, and Paul is laying bare his heart, and we're seeing how Christianity functioned in the first century. We're seeing the practical side of it, and we're seeing a great many things working out that we ought to see. Paul has given us doctrine in the first part. And the practice is always to spend a long time with the doctrine. And I guess some of you thought we really spent a long time. And we did. But we're spending time here because we feel this. Though it's practical, it's very important. Now, let me give you my translation. He says, Now I beg of you, brethren, through our Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit, 
that ye strive intensely with me in your prayers to God on behalf of me. Now, here is one of the most solemn and earnest and serious appeals of Paul for prayer that you find in the Bible. Paul recognizes he's facing danger. He realizes that in his ministry he's come to a place which is a crisis, enemies on every hand. And he had reason to fear. The succeeding events prove that. And Paul is asking for prayer here in a very wonderful way. And he says, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul always, everything that was to come to him had to come through Jesus Christ. And he asked the believers in Roman Jerusalem, all of them, to join with him. And he is the intercessor through whom all believers must come. And I mean now the Lord Jesus. He says, I want all of you to pray through Christ. Not to Christ, but through him. He's our great intercessor. Go through him to God and pray for me. And then through the love of the Spirit. Now, he means here by the love of the Spirit that love is the fruit of the Spirit which joins all believers together. And you know, we ought to all pray one for another. We ought to pray for each other. You ought to pray for me. I ought to pray for you too, by the way. Now, listen to him here that you strive intensely with me, not against me, but with me. And this word for strive is a tremendous word. We get our English word agonize from it. But Paul uses it with the little preposition soon. That means with, soon agonize. Agonize with me. And prayer for Paul was a real exercise for this great apostle. I tell you, he prayed, and it really meant something. And he's asking, pray on behalf of me. He asked for prayer, for his personal safety, that he might come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Oh, how we need this kind of praying today. Not just praying by rote. And prayer list is important. I have a prayer list. But I think that sometimes I go over that prayer list rather hurriedly. And prayer for the Apostle Paul was done with great agony, great exercise of soul. He laid hold of God. This is something that, again, is so desperately needed today, this kind of praying. We need people who know how to pray for us. Now, verse 31 that I may be delivered from them that do not believe in Judea, and that my service which I have for Jerusalem may be accepted of the saints. In other words, this is Paul's prayer request, and it's twofold. That his life was in jeopardy from unbelievers in Judea, the religious rulers, and he wanted to be delivered from them. And then the second thing is that the church in Jerusalem you know, might be hesitant in accepting a gift from Gentiles, and he wanted them to accept. And as a result, both prayers were answered. Somebody says, but he was arrested. Sure, but he was put immediately in the hands of the Romans, and it enabled him to appear before kings and fulfill the will of God for the Apostle Paul. 
and finally to actually go before the Caesar in Rome. He appealed to him. Now, verses 32 and 33, "...that I may come unto you with joy by the will of God, and may with you be refreshed. Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen." Now, this is the conclusion of Paul's prayer request. The prayer was answered. His life was spared. The church in Jerusalem accepted the gift. He did come with joy to Rome, although two years in jail at Caesarea was spent in patience and a shipwreck on the way. And finally he arrived and he was in chains. But Paul came in the joy of the Holy Spirit. Oh, how we need that kind of joy today in the lives of believers, and all of us need it. Now, did Paul find rest and refreshment in Rome? Well, the answer's debatable. He did find all these, I think, and more beyond Rome and Spain. Listen to him in Second Timothy again, 4, 6, and 8. This is important for us to see. He says, "...for I am now ready to be offered." And the time of my departure is at hand. I fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but all them also that love is appearing. Now he says the God of peace, that shows that Paul knew peace down in prison, in chains, and in storm and shipwreck. And I pray that you might know that and that I might know that kind of peace today that Paul had. Now, we come to the last chapter of Romans, and we see in this chapter the relationship of Christians to one another, and it's going to be demonstrated here again, the gospel walks in shoe leather in the first century in the Roman Empire. And believe me, this is the thing that thrills my heart, is that in that pagan empire of Rome, there were Christians walking down the streets of those cities, witnesses for Christ. The joy of the Lord was in their heart. And I think this is one of the most revealing chapters that we have in the epistle to the Romans. Paul's going to leave the mountain peaks of doctrine, as he's already done, to come down to the pavements of Rome. Here we see Christianity walking in shoe leather on the streets of first-century pagan Rome. This is Christianity in action. These great doctrines that Paul proclaimed are not missiles for outer space. They are not to be used to go to the moon, but they are vehicles which actually ran on Roman roads. The gospel was translated into life and into reality. This remarkable chapter should not be omitted or neglected in any study of Romans. Dr. Newell has made this comment. He says this 16th chapter is neglected by many to their loss. How true. Now, there are 35 persons that are mentioned by name here. All were either believers living in Rome, or they were believers that were with the Apostle Paul. And he probably was in Corinth 
when he wrote this epistle. There is expressed a mutual love and tender affection, which was a contradiction of Roman philosophy and practice. And it's rather unlike some churches today. These Christians were different. Little wonder that Rome marveled at these Christians and said, My, how these Christians love each other. Now, in this final chapter, we have first the commendation of Phoebe, who was the bearer of this epistle. And then we have Christians in Rome are greeted, verses 3 through 15. Then we have the conduct toward other Christians, verses 16 through 20. And then Christians with Paul send greetings, verses 21 and 24. And then the concluding benediction, verses 25 and 27. Now we have first commendation of Phoebe. Listen to him. I commend unto you Phoebe, our sister, which is a servant, that is a deaconess of the church, which is at Sencrea, that ye receive her in the Lord as becometh saints, and that ye assist her in whatsoever business she hath need of you, for she hath been a succorer of many and of myself also. This is a prominent woman in the early church. Quite remarkable was a woman that carried this epistle to Rome. My, what an important document she had. Now, Phoebe is the first believer that's mentioned in this catalog of the heroes of faith. And Romans has this list here. Their exploits are not recorded. That is all of them. But here's this woman. She was a Gentile, as her name indicates. And as we've said, there were many Gentiles in the Roman church. She was named, actually, for the Greek goddess Artemis, or Diana, or Phoebe. It's all the same. Now, in Greek mythology, she was the goddess of the moon. As her brother Apollo, he was the god of the sun. And many believers, when they were born in the Roman world of that day, where the worship of these gods of Greek mythology were practiced, they were named for them. And this woman was. Now, many of these folk, when they came to Christ, they gave up their heathen and pagan name, and then they adopted another name that was, a, shall we say, a Christian name. Now, she is the one that bears the epistle. And apparently, she's a very prominent woman in the church. And this reveals something, I think, here that's important to see. First of all, she's a woman of ability, and she's called here the servant of the church, which is at Sencrea. Now, Sencrea was actually the place where you took ship in that day if you wanted to leave Corinth. That is, if you were going east, you would go down to Sencrea. I was there. It was a very clear day. And I looked down from the ruins of ancient Corinth, and as I looked down and saw the distance, I wondered whether I was accurate in my book when I said that Sencrea was the eastern seaport of Corinth, but it was about nine miles distant. 
looked to me like it wasn't over three miles distant. But, of course, on a clear day, these things can certainly deceive you. And so it may have been that it was more than it looked like. Now, San Crea was the seaport town when you were in Corinth and went down. So uh, apparently Paul wrote the epistle to the Romans from Corinth. And Phoebe, who lived down at San Crea, and apparently she was a woman of ability, a woman of means, and a woman that probably was engaged in business. Now she's called a servant, which means deaconess, and it's the same word used for deacon. And it reveals the fact that there were women who occupied a very prominent place in the early church. She occupied an office. And may I just say here something that's been on my mind and heart a long time, although I never insisted on it in any church that I served. I believe that one of the reasons that women have moved into the place of becoming pastors and preachers, and I don't think they should, I think this is one office that is denied to them. And I know that this day of women's rights, that I'll sure sound like a square, but it doesn't make any difference. I just want to be just about as round as the Bible is, and I don't mind being a square if the Bible is square. And so I believe that if the church had given women oh, her rightful position in the church, that we wouldn't have those becoming pastors and preachers today. I think there should be deaconesses in the church. And I think they should sit on an equality with any other board that is in the church. I think that it's needed today some of the insights that women have that men do not have. God has made them finer than a man. A watch is finer than an automobile. And it's more delicate. And a woman has been given a sense that a man doesn't seem to have. A woman can walk into a room where there are room full of women, and those women can size her up by her dress and by her manner in five minutes. They'll know a great deal about that woman, and those of us that belong to the male side of the human race, we appear stupid at a time like that, and I'm sure that we are. We're not able to figure out. Other than this, we know whether she's good-looking or not. That's just about the extent. That is the only appeal and the only insight that a man would have. You need that insight that a woman has. Now, she was a deaconess of the church, and she apparently had gone to Rome on business, and Paul put this letter in her hand rather than trusting it that day to public transportation. They had a real mail service in that day, and it was slow, but couldn't be any slower than ours is today. Now, while Paul was on the way back to Jerusalem, she took this letter and was going to Rome, and now Paul commends her to the saints there in Rome. That's the first woman mentioned. Now, we have given here, Christians in Rome that are greeted from verses 3 to 15. There's quite a list here. Now, I want to go down this list because it's very important. He says, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my helpers in Christ Jesus. 
who have for my life laid down their own necks, unto whom not only I give thanks, but also the churches of the Gentiles. Now, there were churches of the Gentiles, you see. And I think that would be true to a certain extent of the church in Rome. I think it was made up of all races. The church in Rome was integrated, that's for sure. Now, we're told here that this Jewish couple, and this gives us quite an insight into the movement of Christians in that day and how the church in Rome came into existence. Now, actually, how did Paul know Priscilla and Aquila and know they were his helpers? Well, there had been persecution, a wave of anti-Semitism that had risen in the city of Rome. And Aquila and Priscilla, who were Jews, they had to leave. And they came, by the way, to the city of Corinth, and they set up shop. It was a good commercial center. And Paul met them there. They were tent makers, and Paul was, and that drew them together. And Paul led them to the Lord. And then they were with Paul over in Ephesus, you will recall. They were laborers together with him. Apparently, they went over there to open up a branch of their store. And we find them now. They're back in Rome. They have returned home now, and they are converts of the Apostle Paul. Now, I think many of these others were also. Now, Paul sends greetings to them. And the thing that interests me here again is, when we first meet them, why we're told that their names were Aquila and Priscilla. And then you follow them through. And in Acts 18:26, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, whom when Aquila and Priscilla had heard. So that it's Aquila and Priscilla. But now here, it's Greek Priscilla and Aquila my helpers in Christ Jesus. Why did Paul turn this around? Well, I think that here is a case of a family, a man and his wife, where the wife was the dominant member of the family. Now, that often happens, I think, unfortunate many times, but it works many times too, by the way. And it works here. Priscilla, in spiritual matters, she was the leader. And now it's Greek Priscilla and Aquila. They are the outstanding workers for Christ that Paul had led to the Lord. Now we have in verse 5, "...likewise greet the church that's in their house. Salute my well-beloved Eponidas, who is the firstfruits of Achaia under Christ." Now the local church met in private homes at the very beginning. There are many references to that. I give them in my book on Romans, Acts 12, 12, Colossians 4, 15. Sandy writes, There is no decisive evidence until the third century of the existence of special buildings used for churches. They met in the home. Now, that's the belief of a great many folk. I've held the belief for years that the church began in the home it will return to the home today. Many of these great big mausoleums that are called churches, they have a steeple on them, they're nothing in the world but a pile of brick and stone and mortar. They are mausoleums. They do not contain a real living body of believers at all. So a church was never intended to be spoken of as a building. 
In the first three centuries, the church was the body of believers. And Aquila and Priscilla had a church met in their home. Eponidas here is a Greek name. It means praise. And he apparently was the first convert that Paul had had in Asia. That is, back in the province of Asia. And then in verse 6, we see Greek Mary, who bestowed much labor on us. Now, she labored to the point of exhaustion. Now, that's a Jewish name, and it means rebelliousness. But what a change had taken place in her life. Before becoming a believer, she was in rebellion, but now she just knocks herself out for the sake of other believers because she is obedient to Christ. Now, in verse 7, I read, Salute Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen, my fellow prisoners, who are of note among the apostles who also were in Christ before me. Andronicus is a Greek name, and it's been identified with a slave. And Junia is a Roman name and can be either masculine or feminine. Paul calls them my fellow countrymen, that it could mean they belonged to the tribe of Benjamin, as did Paul. But it doesn't necessarily mean any close blood relationship. He says they were my fellow prisoners. And that means that Paul had met them in prison somewhere in the Roman Empire. You see, the church in Rome was founded by Paul, but under most unusual circumstances. He led Priscilla and Aquila to the Lord in the Greek Corinthian Agora, the marketplace. Now here in jail, he leads these two prisoners. Now we have verses 8 and 9. Greet Amplius, my beloved in the Lord, salute Urbane, our helper in Christ, and Stachys, my beloved. Now, Amplius is a common slave name, and it occurs in the tombs of the early Christians in the catacombs, always in a place of honor. He evidently was one of Paul's converts and very dear to his heart. Now, Urbanus, or Urbane as we have it here in English, means city bread. You want to know what his name was? He was the city slicker. (laughs) It's just a common slave name. And it may mean he was brought up in the city rather than in the country. And he's one of the real workers with the believers. And stachys means ear of corn. He's been found listed in the royal household. It's a masculine name. He was beloved not only to Paul, but to the church. Now, verse 10, salute Apelles, approved in Christ, salute them which are Aristobulus' household. And he is the approved one. And it could be either a Greek or Jewish name. It was common among the Jews of Pelis. And he had stood some outstanding test. And Aristobulus is identified as a grandson of Herod the Great. And possibly they were slaves who took the name of their masters. Can't say about that. And then salute Herodian, my kinsmen. Greet them that be of the household of Narcissus, which are in the Lord. Now, Herodian, here was evidently a Jew, as Paul was. He calls him my fellow countryman. And the name suggests the Herod family. And he probably had been a slave and taken the name of the family he belonged to. Narcissus is the name of a well-known freedman and not a slave, put to death by Abricana. These are probably slaves who belonged to him and taken his name. 
that is the one that has the name here, not the last one. He was apparently a free man, but maybe a slave who'd been made free. Then in verse 12, salute Tryphena and Tryphosa, who labor in the Lord. Salute the beloved Persis, which labored much in the Lord. I have a sermon that I preach on Tryphena and Tryphosa. The names are euphonious. They just struck me when I read the epistle. And they mean delicate and dainty. These were apparently two old maids. I ought not to say that, but you understand what I mean, I'm sure. And they came to know Christ. They were apparently women of means. But they couldn't get out to the evening service. But they were wonderful folk. And they had supported the apostle Paul. They labored in the Lord. But there was another woman there by the name of Persis. She labored much in the Lord. She was a free woman also. And her position enabled her to do more than the other two sisters. She worked for the Lord, you see. Then we have Rufus. And he was related to the apostle Paul. And then you have a list given here as Sincritus, Phlegon, Hermas, Petrobus, and Hermes, and the brethren which are with him. These are all just names to us, but they came to know Christ. And then he mentions Salute Philologus and Julia, Nereus, and his sister in Olympus, and all the saints which are with them. So here's another group of believers and they were there in Rome. Paul knew them, apparently led them to the Lord. Then salute one another with a holy kiss. And that was the form of greeting in that day. Don't recommend it today. Now Paul puts in a word of warning. Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them with cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine that you've learned. Avoid them. And then he has this to say, which is quite interesting here. For your obedience has come abroad unto all men. I'm glad, therefore, on your behalf, but yet I would have you wise unto that which is good, simple concerning evil. You see, the faith came abroad also, but the faith is manifested in obedience. Then he says, The God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Now he brings greetings from those that were with him. Timothy was with him, and Dr. Luke, and Jason, and Sosipater, my kinsman, salute you. And then he says, I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, salute you. Paul, you see, had a amanuensis, a secretary. And then Gaius, mine host, that's where he was staying. He salutes him. Then he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Now he says, now to him, that is a power establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery. Now, the mystery means it had never been revealed in the Old Testament, which was kept secret since the world began, but now is made manifest and by the scriptures of the prophets according to the commandment of the everlasting God made known to all nations for the obedience of faith. Here we have obedience of faith. You know, the reason that trust and obey is my favorite hymn. When we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. While we do his good will, he abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. When you trust Christ, you will obey him. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. 
That's the picture the Scripture gives of the believer today. That's the message of Romans.